Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. I first met John Holmes from Sky Sports at the Stonewall Rainbow Laces Summit in 2017. The Stonewall and a bunch of organizations in the UK had organized a bunch of people who wanted to talk about LGBTQ inclusion in sports at um, in Manchester at the uh, stadium for Manchester United. God help me as an American, I don't know what that stadium is called, uh, but a bunch of people went to Manchester. They were kind enough to uh, allow me as an American to attend. And one of the highlights was meeting John Holmes. John had been reading out sports for a long time. He's a, an editor at Sky Sports, and, uh, and, and we had communicated via email. And John talked at that time about really trying to create a platform in the UK like we had at Outsports in the US. Of course, Outsports covers issues from around the world, but we do focus mostly on the United States and, and Canada, and he really wanted to create something in the UK. And he did just that. With the support of Sky Sports, he has created a platform at Sky Sports where he and other people talk regularly about LGBTQ athletes. They profile the athletes the way we do at Outsports. And it's really helped uh, advance the conversation uh, in the UK regarding LGBTQ inclusion in sports uh, in a way that you know, Outsports being based in the United States simply simply couldn't do. Um, John joins me this week to talk about his journey uh, doing this work, trying to create a platform in the UK uh, at Sky Sports, the work that he's done, some of his favorite stories that he's seen in the UK. And uh, we, we don't really touch on the Olympics a lot. Um, obviously, the UK's had a, a lot of out athletes uh, in, in the Olympic Games, particularly, obviously, the, the Summer Games, Tom Daly and and uh, Tom Bosworth and others. So it's uh, just, you know, really wonderful. John's been a, an incredible colleague. He's come to Outsports Pride events. Uh, and it's just uh, really, I, I enjoy every conversation that I have with him. He's very bright, very smart, really understands the issues, listens really well, uh, and is really good at his job. Anyhow, I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Holmes. John, thank you so much for joining me. And it's incredible seeing where you and the work that you do have ended up since we first met uh, in, in Manchester in 2017. And I remember you just you talking then just to kind of about starting to try to, to cover some things at Sky Sports. Take us back to your very first memories of trying to get sports media and sky sports to cover these issues more uh hi sid hi everyone yeah thanks so much for having me on yeah going back to the four years ago since since we met that seems like a, a long time but that was really the beginning of, i guess of, of everything we've been trying to do at sky sports here in the uk around um you know being more proactive in terms of lgbt inclusion and we just signed up um a few months before that to the kind of reinvented Rainbow Laces campaign uh, run by the charity Stonewall over here. And they created this new coalition of businesses and brands called Team Pride. And that brought together different expertise from across those sectors. So Adidas were a part of it. Um, Aon, obviously big financial group, Sky Sports, 
Barclays, I think, were there from the very beginning, or the, the Premier League certainly were as well. Uh, and that just kind of, we came on board with, with the campaign. We wanted to do more. We were already sort of sort of dipping our toe in the water, really, in terms of these, these kinds of stories. And then this opportunity arrived where they needed a media partner to help to amplify the message. And we were just in a good place to be able to say, yeah, we'll do it. And we already had a, a really burgeoning LGBT network at Sky. And that meant that we already had a really close relationship with Stonewall, obviously the UK's leading sort of LGBTQ charity. And we were, we were there and, and ready to go. So when I met you in, at Old Trafford in, in that May, um, we'd just done our first kind of Rainbow Laces activation, which happens around November, December every year. And we'd done some stories and we'd kind of got ourselves off the ground, really. And, and, and that was a big summit, bringing loads of people together from across sport, hearing athletes' stories. Obviously, you came all the way over from L.A. for it, which, which shows that it had some importance. And, uh, and it was a really good session, I think. Did, when you started talking internally about covering these things and supporting this project, did you face any kind of resistance or, or hurdles that you thought might get in the way? There wasn't really. I mean, one thing that we'd had that we were so fortunate to have was this short film called Wonder Kid, which um, some of you, some of your listeners might have heard of. It's a 30 minute drama about a fictional Premier League footballer, a young guy grappling with his sexuality and wanting to come out and be visible in that sort of team environment. Um, and this film had been created by a young independent filmmaker and he'd managed to get um, Sky Talent uh, involved. So some of our commentators and pundits and uh, reporters had lent their voices to the narration of the film. So this kind of was our kind of gateway drug is the way I often sort of tend to term it in terms of getting into a, a, a bigger conversation about, about rainbow laces and, and all the different parts of the LGBTQ sports picture that, that you're aware of. Uh, and, and that was really refreshing because people from across the business, you know, they hadn't really had the opportunity to, to look more closely at this part of sport before because there hadn't really been that drive to do so. But everything kind of um, aligned, really, I suppose, in terms of the LGBT network being in a strong place, this film Wonder Kid coming along. And then we did a big screening event uh, for it on campus at Sky. We've got a 200-seat cinema, you know, great space to be able to have kind of panel discussions, etc. And people just from across Sky Sports and across Sky were really kind of energized by it. And, and, and it just kind of snowballed from there, really. I remember, and I don't remember if it was, it was at that meeting, though I think it was, or it was shortly after, I, I said to you, my, my kind of observation about that day was the conversations that you all in the UK are having were five years behind the ones that that we were having in the US, that, that that meeting in 2017, that summit was similar to ones we had have in 2012. I, I'm curious if, uh, like what you thought at the time, like, oh, what was this guy so full of shit? Uh, or, oh, maybe he had a point or um, no, I totally disagree. I'm, I'm just curious what you think of that observation that I had made at the time. Well, I think that observation was was accurate in terms of the people I think that you, had conversations with on that day. I mean, I remember, uh, well, we can name names because I think you named them in your in your piece yeah. that you wrote about it, but uh, Gordon Taylor, who then was the chief executive of the Professional Foot Footballers Association, which is kind of the trade union for professional footballers in this country. And he's kind of on his way out. I think he's still actually in, in that role now. He's been in that role for years. 
I mean, when people talk about dinosaurs in British sport, I mean, largely talking about people like Gordon Taylor, and he famously had a kind of car crash interview around LGBT inclusion as part of a documentary that Gareth Thomas, the rugby player, made yeah. looking at um, homophobia in football. And it was, you know, really awkward to watch because he just didn't really seem to understand the topic. And this was after you met him at Old Trafford. Um, so, yeah, there were other people there that, that day, and it probably did look a bit parochial perhaps from your point of view you know someone who's who's kind of been at the forefront of, of all the work that's been done in the US but I do think there were people in that room who were really kind of driving change within their organizations and I think the problem that we've always had and hopefully you know some of the work I'd like to think that we've done at Sky and that I might have done with sports media LGBT has helped to move the dial on this is that people just weren't talking about the work that they were doing there was very kind of tight lips in terms of wanting to share good practice or or just a lack of confidence in terms of of having of having a wider conversation so people were were just kind of talking amongst themselves really and and as you as you know both you and i we want stories to tell and we really wanted to encourage people that actually they could make a big difference if they just opened up a little bit yeah well that that, that that conversation aside that you mentioned, it was with this, I don't know, 70 year old man. It was, at a, it was like me and two black women at a table with him. We were supposed to ten, spend 10 minutes talking about diversity and he spent the first nine and a half minutes talking. And I'm like, you're the old white guy, straight guy at the table. You dominated the conversation about diversity. And that, I said, that was, that was indicative of what, um, just that conversation, not, not the conversation as a whole. What I saw as a conversation as, as a whole was lots of talk about the need to change minds in sport. And, and you know, what, what we had recognized years ago at Outsports, people are finally realizing that we were right, frankly, um, is that at least in the US, the support was there. No, but, but to your point, nobody was talking about the support. The athletes weren't talking about it. The corporations weren't investing in it. It was there, just nobody was doing it. And, and to me, that's, you know, one of the beauties of, of you doing this work in the UK is you shine light to, oh, wow, there's this, there's this manager who's been out for 10 years and there's this referee and oh, nobody's tried to kill them. Maybe the referee they tried to kill, but yeah I mean all those stories you know are still there now and and I think we're still uncovering quite a lot of them that people haven't felt necessarily confident enough to come forward and want to to be a part of um of rainbow laces for example or or football v homophobia I mean the stories in football and you know we should talk about soccer because it is of course the biggest sport over here and there is still you know, a lot of progress to be made in the men's side of the game. And somebody like Gordon Taylor, you know, would would have been an obstacle to that. And not necessarily through any kind of homophobia or anything that that he might hold himself, but more just creating a climate and a culture where these things were not spoken about. And there was a lack of understanding about the different aspects of, of why somebody who is gay or bi in men's professional soccer might want to talk about their journey. And it could be because you know, they're in a relationship, they're, they're really, really happy in that relationship, or they're struggling with their mental health, or, or, or you know, they have faced kind of discrimination, and, and somebody like uh, Robbie Rogers coming up along, of course, at, at that time, or just before, you know, that has seismic impact on the game, because people just hadn't had been able to learn about um, an experience of somebody like him beyond just the, the very well-known narrative of Justin Fashionu, um, and, and the kind of 
you know, the fashion news story really had become almost like a barrier to, to anyone else wanting to, 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 to talk about their experience. Um, you know, and, and even, well, even I was going to say, even with Robbie, one of the first stories that I got the chance to do was with Adam McCabe, uh, another, you know, American who was over in the UK and had had a really bad experience. Talk about that, Justin Fashion, because it, despite Robbie Rogers coming to the United States and women winning an MLS Cup, despite Jason Collins um, going to the playoffs with the Nets, and despite, you know, various other examples, when people talk about issues uh, for gay men coming out in sports in the United States, they talk about Michael Sam. And because, you know, he never played an NFL down. Uh, and Justin Fashionu seems to be kind of that for you where, yes, he was out, yes, he played, but then the way the story all ended had a lingering shadow on, on gay athletes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think we've really struggled to kind of, I mean, it's such a, a, a multifaceted layered story. There's loads of different moving parts to it that people have, have, have struggled to like look uh, kind of beyond the, the obvious, as it were. You know, here's a, a footballer. He struggled with racism and homophobia and ended up taking his own life. Actually, there's, the, there's so many different parts of, of his story that um, are really, really interesting. And even after he came out, he did come back to the game and played, you know, at a level below the elite, but also, but played to a, you know, decent high standard and was well, well loved and respected by supporters. So, I mean, this kind of idea that he came out and it all went horribly wrong, you know, is not entirely true. There was, there was, there was lots of different reasons for, for why his story ended as tragically as it did. Um, but I think, you know, one thing we've become more, much more mindful of is the role the media played within that. And, you know, there's, I think now we're able to reflect on that and, and, you know, there's, there's huge changes have happened, but there's also some lingering remnants of, of the way his story was reported that we still sometimes see now, particularly in the tabloid media. Well, it, it, yeah, you all deal with a couple things, elements that I, I, I do think make seeing the support more difficult. Um, and I want to talk about those two things. The first one being what you just said, the tabloid media. Certainly we have tabloids in the United States. We have the National Enquirer, um, uh, but your tabloids have a bit more heft to them. Uh, and I, you know, you couldn't say the New York Post uh, even comes close to what you have there. You guys have, you know, what, what are recognized as legitimate news sources really just raking the bottom of the barrel for stories. What kind of impact does that have, the media continuing to behave like that, you know, relatively respected media behaving like that? What does that have uh, effect it has on the climate that you're trying to build there? I'd say there's probably two parts to that that are kind of relevant now. One is that tension between the, the front pages and the back pages. Um, so, you know, you'll find that sports media, sports journalists, the coverage that we give to kind of LGBT people in sport is very, I would say very, very reasonable, very, very balanced as an understanding there of, um, you know, the, the, the empathy that you would need to be able to tell somebody's story and to present it properly. Whereas when, when you move towards the front pages, it's literally about selling copies of a newspaper or getting clicks on, on a website. It's, it's still a story that's being sold to the, the general public and it's being marketed 
in terms of the imagery that it uses and the headline that it uses and sensationalism is still the order of the day and you know a lot of the stories that we had that were running in the in the sun newspaper last year um it's one thing i often try to point out to people is that these stories were being run on a weekend when the cover price of the newspaper goes up you know there's there's a clear sign there that that these are, are these are stories that are being peddled to the public which is interested in the topic there's no doubt about it as a natural human human curiosity to know about the the sexuality and the sex lives of, of our sports stars but there's a currency there as well. And people are kind of being manipulated to, to buy copies of newspapers um, off the back of it. Uh, and I would say probably, you know, the other part is the, the Leveson inquiry, which was, um, you know, a kind of really pivotal moment in British media in this country going back a few years. But this was when the hacking, the phone hacking scandal broke and there was a, a huge kind of, um, a reckoning really in, in, the, in the British media about the, the old practices of journalism that had, you know, were absolutely, um, you know, disgusting really in the way that, that people were treated and their, and their secrets were leaked. And, and that changed the whole industry. And it came along with the advent of digital and, and the kind of the, now you see the sales figures of newspapers and print, print media is dying out clearly. Um, but also it changed the way that people could report. And, um, and I suppose, you know, from, from an LGBT point of view, um, it meant that, you know, the, the tabloid, the tabloid media's influence began, began to weaken. And particularly like when you see like a newspaper died off the back of that, the news of the world, um, you know, no longer was able to, to be published because its reputation was shattered. Wow. I mean, the, 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 yes, it's interesting. This kind of, uh, um, dark CD form of journalism, it can get clicks and it can also, absolutely bury your publication yeah i mean particularly from a sports perspective there were you know like sex stories were were very common i mean there was uh, it's also part of that i mean you might have remember a story about the boss of f1 of formula one at the time max mosley um who sued um a newspaper because of the way that it reported on on his sex life that wasn't an lgbt story but it just go it just showed the level of 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 journalism really that was being that was being done and and the 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 Leveson inquiry you know although it didn't necessarily hold everyone to account um you know Rupert Murdoch appeared in front of that inquiry um it's a story actually that's really well told in the in the Murdoch documentary um which we had on BBC I don't know if that's available in America but I'd recommend um checking that out because it's fascinating to see like the 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 grip that he held and still does to some extent hold over the British the British media, and and in terms of sport, it just meant that that people who thought their messages and phone calls were safe and any kind of private life was not necessarily private at all. What is the documentary called? I think it was called the Murdoch Years or um, the Murdoch Dynasty. I can't remember which, but it was a three part BBC. It aired on the BBC over here in, only a few months ago. Um, it's probably it might be available on like BBC America or, or HBO. I'll try to track it down. Yeah, it's really, really good. The other element that you all deal with are the fans. And certainly fans in the United States can be idiots. But, you know, we've been doing out sports for 20 years. I can count on probably one hand the number of stories we've written about where a group of fans at any game or match chanted something anti-gay there was university of virginia had a, a funny chant for a while they got rid of 
this has been over the last even 10 years, a massive problem with, with fans in the UK. Is that dying out now? What, what is the landscape of, of those anti-gay fan chants and, and widespread comments today? So I think there's probably very few songs that are sung now that are homophobic. Um, in terms of, of chants, you know, you've got, you've got the kind of chant where a whole group of fans, like an away, away fans, for example, will sing it, you know, in unison at fans of the opposing team. And, and probably the most maybe well-known examples of that would be like when teams would play Brighton and Brighton, of course, has a, the most kind of well-known LGBT uh, or gay friendly city in the UK. Um, you know, the sort of chance would be like, like, does does your boyfriend know you're here, or um, you know, you kind of, or, or stuff that's even more kind of, you know, rude than than that um, chant would would be. Whereas I suppose now we we've we've kind of reached a point where the the most well known kind of anti gay chant, as it were, now is is often sung at Chelsea, which is uh, the, the Rent Boys chant. You know, Chelsea Rent Boys, etc. And that. Now we're struggling really, or we have when we were in stadiums, and obviously we haven't been in stadiums for a year, like the fans haven't been in ground. So it's kind of, it's kind of not really a talking point again at the moment. But at the time, it was trying to educate fans of opposing teams that that chant actually was homophobic because a lot of them were in opposition to the, even to the concept that the chant itself was homophobic. They thought that it was, it meant to, it was to do something to do with money, to do with um, Roman Abramovich, the Chelsea owner. Um, being, you know, a Russian billionaire and that there was essentially they they were trying to kind of put it across that this chant that had been sung at Chelsea fans for over, you know, 30 years or so was to do with the Russian owner who obviously only came along after that time. So it's it's been it's been difficult and there's a whole reason why that chant is sung and it actually goes back to the 80s and, and kind of Chelsea hooliganism and, and a hooligan who was well known within that firm uh, who who was gay and came out and um, it's 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 become really really difficult to try to to try to eradicate those chants completely but I think most of them have kind of died out or the largely the work of the fan groups themselves and most clubs now of course have their own LGBT supporters groups they've been able to do so much good education work amongst their own fans and that has kind of largely you know wiped those kind of chants away from the songbooks but there's still a few that persist. Yeah, and now that I think of it, I, 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 I lied. <laughs> there, is, there is one chant, the Puto chant in the United States that fans from Central and South America uh, have, um, they were making it widespread a few years ago, but, but soccer, um, uh, MLS and, and, and the soccer teams here clamped down on that. And it's still peaks up every once in a while, but it is that education piece when you start explaining to people, no, 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 think about the core of what you're saying. It's, it's anti-gay and, and they have been getting it, particularly the, 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 um, the fan groups have been getting it and, and the fans themselves in the United States, they've been policing one another. Does, does that happen there? Yeah, absolutely. It's, ha it's happened and it, it goes beyond just the fans as well. There's a lot of the groups of educated stewards, um, and you know, police in stadiums to, to be able to identify what is discriminatory. 
and that that has really helped but it, it can it, it's going to take time to kind of you know at that chant in particular and it, i guess it is the equivalent of the puto chant perhaps in in south american cult culture you know we are going to still have that pushback from a certain group of supporters who don't believe that that chant is is homophobic and and they believe that that they have a right to sing that um because they interpret it differently so 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 that has that has become a bit of a stumbling block but I, you know every year i think we move a bit closer um towards raising that that wider awareness about about that chant in particular circling back to positive stories what are mm. a, a, a couple that stand out to you that you were most happy with of of positive stuff in the uk or maybe with people coming out or some kind of a development that you've gotten to write about in the last few years well there's there's quite a few i suppose that um i mentioned you know the adam mccabe story was one that i did very early on and he'd kind of had a bit of um, media coverage in the US, um, I think on a on, on a website, um, it wasn't yours, it was it was somewhere else that he kind of shared his story with initially, it and it hadn't had that much pickup. But because I knew he played in the UK, I was really keen to follow it up, because I thought it was a really strong example about, you know, the, the, the dressing room culture, the, you know, the locker room culture over here, particularly, and that we hadn't really had reported before. So I managed to work with him on that. And it went really, really big. It was reported um, you know, picked up by a few other places. And most importantly to me, it got mentioned in this ongoing parliamentary inquiry that we had over here in the UK at the time around homophobia in sport. So it was already, it was being referenced as part of this kind of um, this governmental investigation, which was, you know, in, which was obviously really, really kind of reassuring to me that I was on the right track in trying to, to tell these kinds of stories. So me being a football journalist, a soccer journalist, first and foremost, it's quite often those stories are the ones that have had the biggest impact for me. Um, referee Ryan Atkin, who's who's still the only out gay man in a role on the pitch at any level of professional football here in this country. You know, he came to Sky Sports and wanted to share his story of being a, a gay referee. So, so that had huge traction as where it got picked up by loads of other media establishments, which was great. Um, but one as well that, again, it was a fo football referee story that had a big um, you know, impression, a lasting impression on me was a referee from Zimbabwe who came over here to the UK to referee in a football tournament. It was kind of a counterculture World Cup um, before the 2018 World Cup in Russia. And it was played at non-league grounds in and around London uh, from countries and territories around the world that weren't recognised by FIFA, um, run by an organisation called Kanifa. So it's called the World Football Cup. And he came from Zimbabwe to referee in this tournament and, and was outed back home while he was over here in London. And it got reported on in a national newspaper in Zimbabwe, which meant that he couldn't go back home because it wasn't safe. So he claimed asylum in the UK. Um, I, I worked with him on the story. I, I'd, happened, I'd happened to have been covering the tournament at the time anyway. And, and you know we'd actually done a story based around him because he'd shown this green card, which was uh, a, a new disciplinary measure they'd introduced for the tournament, like a red card and a yellow card. It was kind of an intermediary um, disciplinary measure. So this was quite novel. So we, you know, we'd reported on that and it had quite a lot of traction. And then it turned out that the referee who'd shown this green card for the first time was, was Raymond Mashambo, who's the referee in question. And then it turned out, I found out after, a few months afterwards that he'd been going through this whole personal turmoil and crisis. Um, 
and you know was able to talk to him and introduce him to a lot of people um, involved in LGBT football here in London. And he uh, claimed for asylum on the grounds that it wouldn't be safe for him to go back to to Bulawayo in Zimbabwe where he lives. And and quite rarely, I was told by his solicitor, uh, he won his case on the very first appeal, which is really, really rare, particularly for LGBT cases. Normally they get rejected and you have to go through an appeals process. Um, but it was largely based, I was told, on the merit of his story that we were able to run on Sky Sports. So as you can imagine, that was uh, incredibly kind of reassuring. And uh, and I was so, so grateful, not only that he sort of trusted me, but that we were able to get a good result for him. And I keep in touch with him regularly. Um, and it just go, goes to show, it, it's a reminder really of, of just other places around the world where it's just not, not safe to, to be gay. People tell me that they label me as an activist. And I always tell people, I, you know, that that is the, in the United States, that is the constitutional role of journalists is to maybe not be an activist, but be an advocate for the people. You know, we have our first amendment here and that's why it's there <laughs> to advocate for, for people, particularly people like this referee from Zimbabwe who needs help. Do you ever think about that or what your label is? Are you an activist, an advocate, a journalist, all three? I, I'd like to, I'd like to think I am. And I, I think they're not, none of those things are necessarily what I set out to do initially, but I hope that my, my journalism, that, you know, the stories that I'm able to tell, you know, inspire others, you know, advocate for a community. Um, you know, I guess at the moment that's would be most obvious in terms of the trans and non-binary community trying to find their place in sport and facing so many hurdles. Um, that that is something that I'm I'm really passionate about because you know you want to do good work first and foremost, but you want somebody to to react to that and and for it to inspire them to go out there and and make change themselves or to be a part of that of that change. So yeah, I think activism comes into it in, in, in that respect. But I, I think if you start to think in those terms at the very beginning of whatever story you're trying to, to tell, you know, that's probably when you when you run into into trouble. It, it should it should be something that comes organically, I think. Well it's and again, I remember the conversation four years ago and, and you know, you're telling me you read out sports and, and um, we had emailed before that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we um, and, uh, and you kind of like mentioning that, you know, you want to start doing that over in, in the UK more because you didn't really have a UK out sports. And even though we write about worldwide stuff, 95% of what we write about is North American based. And it's just great to see what you've been able to build there, the platform that you have. You know, you also run a, a, a group called Sports Media LGBT Plus. People, if you're a, an LGBTQ sports journalist, track that down on Facebook. And it's just, it's really neat to see, John, that you've really, you've become a big, force in in this work that we do and and like me you use stories to like i said advocate for people and make change and i'm sure that you feel the appreciation of people there but as your colleague i really appreciate what you're doing i think it's i'm really i'm proud of you 
Well, that's hugely kind and generous. I mean, I, I do feel, you know, I, I know it's a bit of a hackneyed saying now, but I do feel I stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of yourself and Jim, um, because reading Outsports when I was younger, you know, in, throughout the whole of the 2000s of the noughties, you know, I was still in the closet at the time. I was working in sports journalism, but I didn't have any level of self-confidence that would allow me to kind of look at this part of sport because I hadn't, I hadn't accepted myself, uh, let alone trying to write stories in, in, you know, which would encourage other people to be more accepting of LGBTQ athletes. Um, but reading Outsports and, and seeing just the growing shift in sports culture in the US uh, and, and wanting our sports culture to hurry up and and catch up in in a lot of respects, you know that really kind of energised me and and it probably led led me down this road that I, that I'm on now. Um, but it's it's been great for my career. That's what I would always say to young journalists, um, particularly, you know, trying to carve out a niche in this industry can be really really difficult at times. Um, but a lot of us, you know, even though we might not want to get pigeonholed necessarily and only writing about one thing. It can, it can also be a great uh, sort of thing to have in your portfolio, a great selling point for your career to, to be able to tell stories which are so personal to athletes and coaches and, and others uh, and, and being able for them to be able to trust you. I think that that says so much. I teach a, a sports journalism class at the University of Florida and I give the same advice to to start your career find a niche i don't care it could be um you know i'm going to focus on writing the stories of black tennis players i'm going to focus on one baseball team in the middle of the country if you become an expert at one thing you can expand from there it's like playing a game of risk you know you just gotta you gotta you gotta you gotta take control of australia and then you can go conquer the rest of the world it's so true and I get quite a lot of emails from young journalists wanting a, a bit of help. Uh, and I always, I always advise them to look locally first, you know, don't try to kind of, I, I get so many people like will send me like match reports from like Premier League games that, 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 that they've written. And, and, you know, no one wants to read an old match report from Manchester United, you know, from three, three weeks ago. It's, you need to focus on those stories that are in your community. And, and if, you're, if you happen to be LGBT yourself, and as we know from those new research that I think came out today from Gallup in the US, you know, Generation Z, Dawn and I were talking about this on the, on the panel event we've just done a bit earlier for FAIR Network. And um, you know, it's so exciting to see that this Gallup research showing that one in six young people now identify as LGBT. Uh, because you know these are going to be the storytellers of the future and there's going to be people in there who are going to you know come into sport or already be part of that who are just going to have the confidence to hit the ground running and be able to to you know tell stories of teammates and, and athletes and other people in their sports circle either in their local environment or, or maybe more widely in a sport that they're really passionate about and that's I think that's that's going to really sort of um ensure that the legacy that you've laid down and hopefully you know I, I might have contributed a little bit to it here in the UK is is gonna is gonna run and run. You can find John Holmes on social media on Twitter he's at johnboy79 j-o-n-b-o-y 79 and the group that he leads is a sports media lgbt at sports media lgbt so you can track him down there you can find 
both of uh, both John and Sports Media LGBT on Facebook as well, Instagram. Uh, so go check them out. Uh, next week, I've got a, a conversation coming with uh, an Olympic hopeful who is in the United States and uh, not probably not going to make it this time around. But uh, but I'm really looking forward to this this conversation. It's somebody we've we've featured on Outsports in the past, and uh, I hope you'll come on back next week. Yeah.